Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. I did manage to reformat uh, the poetic structure that's in your Bible. I tweaked it a little bit to get it all on the insert. Um, It's more readable in your Bible probably, the way that the ESV does a good job of listing it out. So whichever is easiest for you. But I wanted to have all the verses in front of you. We did cover a few verses in chapter 50 last week, uh, but I'm backing up a little bit to go forward, and that's kind of necessary because the message overlaps. As you know, this is uh, a book that summarizes the 50-year prophetic ministry of Isaiah, and I think that the book is rightly called the Gospel of Isaiah because it's a picture of Christ. Uh, The beauty for us, being able to study this book now, this side of God's revelation and in Christ ultimately fulfilling these things as we have the lens of Jesus to look through. Um, really, we're reading a prequel to Christ's coming and then we can see the vivid detail given in how Jesus fulfills it. And that's the beauty of God's word, especially here in Isaiah. Today, we have come to the third of four so-called servant songs in Isaiah. There are four distinct sections, starting in chapter 42, where Isaiah gives us revelation about the Messiah, who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And each one of these sections builds a little more of the picture. He's not talking about himself when you see it in the first person. You'll note how the servant is somewhere identified. This passage, not up front, it takes a little while. But you recognize when you step back, there are four different distinct sections. The last one's the longest one, the one everyone here is probably familiar with. Isaiah 52 and 53. That very vivid picture of the suffering servant. Jesus dying for our sins. Now that's building. That picture's building and you're going to see that with me. Now it's complex, so I want to do the best I can to not make it confusing. In fact, that's what I pray for every day during the week is that I would make God's word plain to you because expositional preaching is simply this. It's not just going through the Bible. That's part of it. It's the message of the sermon should be the message of the text. And so I want that to be the case and we'll pray for that in a moment. But there are 11 verses before you. The first three is God Jehovah, that is God the Father speaking, setting up what's going to come next as he basically rebukes the people for not listening to his revelation and then doubting that he loves them. Then, starting at verse 4, down to verse 9, you have the servant speaking, giving us a greater picture of Jesus. And then verse 10 and 11, Jehovah comes back, God the Father comes back and caps off this section that will, of course, blend right into the next. With that bit of a preface, please hear now as I read God's inspired and therefore inerrant and therefore timelessly authoritative word. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? 
Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and who has no light trust in the name of the Lord, and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, whenever we read of Israel's despondency, their unwillingness, or rather inability, it seems, to hear. When we read of Israel's sin, it does cut deeply because we know that apart from your saving and sustaining grace, we would be just as despondent, just as stiff-necked, just as rebellious. In fact, These exposés on Israel are just as much an exposé on our condition apart from your intervention as anything else. Lord, fix our eyes on Christ once again, the faithful servant of Jehovah. Deepen our faith in you as a result of the preaching of your word this day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, this is the third of four servant uh, songs in the book. Back to chapter 42, when the first one appeared, we got a little bit of light about who Messiah would be. Who would be the servant who substitutes for the failing servant? You remember the the story of Israel is one of failure. Um, God is using Israel to bring forth the Messiah, but Israel's also an emblem of human failure when God gives a standard. We can all relate. We see it in Adam, and we see it again in Israel. And in Adam, there needed to be a second Adam, Or those of us in the first Adam would die, spiritually and eternally. So God sends the second Adam, Christ, to be our representative. And in similar fashion, as he raises a people, he shows to the people their inability to keep covenant with God, even though God has showered many blessings upon them. And so he raises the faithful servant, the failed servant Israel, the people, the faithful servant representative of them, the anointed one, Christ, 
And that's what Isaiah unfolds for us in these servant songs. And in chapter 42, begins to give us a little bit of a picture. Remember what it says there. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So he's anointed. That's where we get the word Messiah. And Christ is the Greek word based on Messiah. He is the anointed one, chosen by God, specially picked out to be this servant. Then later in chapter 49, after seeing just an inkling of his potential suffering, that he would be a bruised reed but not broken in chapter 42, Now in chapter 49, the second song, which we're not too far away from. The Lord called me from the womb, the servant says. The body of my my mother he named by name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. We get more of a glimpse of the prophetic role the servant will play. Now we come to a passage where there's mention of his turning his back to be stricken. More suffering. A fuller picture of Messiah's coming. Remember, when you're first hearing this, that audience is looking for a king to rise up, make Israel prominent again, take on Babylon, show their God's people. It's king, king, king. It's conquer, it's defeat, it's put off the oppressors. So when this servant of Jehovah is spoken of, they're seeing through that lens. They're hoping through that lens. They're not seeing the greater message of their sin and their need for a substitute yet. Because this servant of Jehovah will not just be another king. He will be the king. He will not be just another prophet like Isaiah. He'll be the perfect word of God. And little do they know, but yet will unfold, he won't just be a priest. He'll be the great high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. The perfect picture of the prophet, the priest, and the king is coming to us in Christ. We can look through the New Testament and know it, The original audience didn't have that benefit. What we have pictured for us is the message we need repeated again. That Christ, the servant of Jehovah, he's everything we're not. Look at the descriptors that the servant has for himself, and you'll see it's the antithesis of what we are. And this is why we need him. The first three verses lay out the problem that the people have, and we can, by extension, identify with. In a sense, you have, as Franz Dalich put it in his commentary, Israel's self-rejection is evident in these first three verses. And then in the verses that follow, you have the steadfastness of the servant of Jehovah. In, in these first verses, last week I accented that despite man's inability and his waywardness and his rebellion, God is still powerful enough to redeem. And this is what God lays forward, even though they think that he has rejected them. He says to them, Verse 1, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? In other words, he, he's not finally divorced them. He is disciplining them for their disobedience, but they're acting as though he has completely cut them off. It evidences how irresponsive we are apart from God's grace. God continues in verse 1, which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Now, it causes us to pause because God owes nobody anything. So, he's saying, you're still mine. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So, in other words, I'm disciplining you, but I'm not finally cutting you off. But the people could not see this. 
They just thought of themselves as orphaned. Why have you forsaken me, God? No, no spiritual response is evident, despite what God has done for them. It reveals their inability. It reveals their despondency. It reveals a people not only unwilling to respond, but it really seems, at the core, unable to respond. That is the message you get over and over again. That in and of ourselves, we cannot respond. We cannot hear what God is saying. We cannot listen if we cannot hear. And so we disobey. And it would take a gracious act of God to change that equation. And that's exactly what unfolds. But notice the frustration, if you will, from Jehovah, verse 2. When, why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? There's no response from the people, no obedience, no adherence, no acknowledgement of God, no hearing and doing what God says. This really reveals to us something we can identify with, our complete lack of spirituality if it weren't for God. If God did not breathe life into us, how would we respond? How would we obey? And not even just the first time that we come to Christ, which has to be a gift from God to have us believe, but every time after that and every obedience is dependent upon God to give us spiritual sensitivity and understanding and and conviction and recognition, and it's evidenced in what we see of the people that they don't have this. And it would be demoralizing, like so many other exposés in Scripture about human nature, it would be demoralizing if, if God didn't continue the story. And that's why this is the good news of Isaiah, even from a prophet speaking originally to a people about to enter captivity. What a picture we have of the servant as he speaks. Look at verse 4 and following. This is the third of the four great, great servant songs laden in this message of Isaiah. And here we have, unlike us, unlike the people Israel, we have a completely, fully responsive and obedient servant of God, our representative in this sense. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Now the formula, the Lord God this way, is very unique to the book in this portion, and we know when we read it as a whole, this isn't just Isaiah the prophet speaking, this compares perfectly well with the other servant songs, and we know the description is of, of perfection, of one completely in tune with God the Father, unlike even the prophets could be of old. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. So he has knowledge from God that he will speak. This is the servant. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. So he has equality. I mean, that's, that's a quality given to the word of God, that it would, it would renew our strength. It would give us flight for our wings. That's Words attributed to God. And now the servant is saying that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So this is one who is God's man, God's appointed man, his anointed man. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. No man, not even a prophet, could say this. Only the prophet, only the servant. So clearly descriptive of Christ himself, the one who would come from this perspective. When you think about what he's saying, it has to only refer to Jesus. For all the good that Abraham did in his life, and he's upstanding, 
Certainly compared to me, he is. But Abraham, he lied. He had sin issues like the rest of us. He could not say what it says in verse 5 about himself, that the Lord God opened his ear. He was not rebellious and did not turn backward. Isaac followed his father's deceitful lead in a few areas, like lying about his wife as his sister. Jacob was a deceiver. We know that. He strived with God on more than one occasion. Moses showed anger and outward rebellion towards God. That prophet couldn't speak these words. Jonah ran from God. So did Jeremiah in some sense. David, a man after God's own heart, struggled with various sins in his life. None of these could say what the servant of Jehovah could say, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. Now that would make me listen if I'm in Israel in that time, and I'm seeing what disciplines come upon for rebellion, for not listening, for not hearing, and now God says there will be the servant, the one whose ear I will open, he will not rebel, and he will not turn back. Totally different from what we have seen in mankind thus far. His words will be in alignment with God's word. Responsive, listening, obedient, learned. This is the servant of Jehovah. Now, we gain some newer perspective. Some of this has been said in the earlier servant songs. But as I mentioned, each servant song paints a fuller picture of Messiah. And that's true of the whole Old Testament, by the way. Each new progressed revelation gives us more of who Messiah will be and we know was as a result of the fulfillment. But verse 6, something new now about the servant. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, I gave my back to those who strike. It's not just that he was walking along, got hit and stopped and let them hit him more. I gave my back. A back to strikes is usually a person submitting to a charge against them. They've been convicted and charged, and the, the penalty is to be stricken in the back. That was a, a, a Jewish punishment from of old and was similar even into the New Testament period and done by other governments as well. It's a symbolizing of officially being called guilty and receiving a punishment. And he's saying by giving it, he's not acknowledging that he is guilty. He's saying, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. When we come to the gospel accounts and we read of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 26, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now I want you to think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. That person ordained by God to be in that moment, at that time to fulfill that prophecy, didn't even know what he was saying. When he said to Jesus, prophesy to us, he was, as he got hit. Jesus didn't even have to speak and he was doing the, same, the thing his, his abuser was saying about him. Prophesy to us. And what does he call him? You Christ, which means you anointed one. Who is it that struck you? Little did he, did he know before the foundation. He knew exactly who was striking him. Later in Matthew 27, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, which is a judicial penalty of blows on the back with a whip. The Romans took everything the Jews did and just made it more brutal and delivered him to be crucified. E.J. Young, who 
writes a commentary on this book of Isaiah, wrote, The only one who can so patiently suffer is the one without sin, the Christ of God. What would God's relation be to the servant at this time of his humiliation that he's forecasting in verse 6 of our text? Verse 7 says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, something has to be understood very clearly about what Jesus did for us, and it's displayed here. Jesus submitted himself unto the humiliation of the cross and unto death for us. God the Father upheld him through this whole process. There was only one moment where it was different, and that's when God the Father turned his face away from his son, and his wrath was poured out upon his son on the cross when the, the sky's lights went out. But up to that moment, God is sustaining Jesus so he can endure what was necessary to fulfill his role as our servant representative. So Jesus says he can do this mission, verse 7, because the Lord helps him. He has not been disgraced. And he has set his face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus, the servant, clear about his mission. Franz Dalich, who I mentioned earlier, writes a, a short but wonderful commentary and says about this, setting his face like flint. In holy hardness of endurance, he turned his face to his antagonist without being subdued or frightened away and was well assured that he whose cause he represented would never leave him in the lurch. I mean, unlike our fickleness, unlike our lack of commitment, even though we say we're committed, unlike everything that's true of our ability to stay with something, is Jesus, who sets his face like flint, like hard rock, it will not turn. Young, who I mentioned earlier, says here, no temptation will deflect him from his God-appointed course. Obedience to God to God's will, looms paramount in his determination. He has set his face like a hard rock so that it cannot be turned to one side or the other. I love how the, the gospel of Luke depicts this uh, more vividly than even the other gospels, but it's there. Where Jesus determines to go to Jerusalem. It makes no good sense to go to Jerusalem, humanly speaking, but it's his mission to go to Jerusalem where he will die, where he will be our suffering servant representative. In Luke Chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 7 again, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Perfect belief on the part of the servant means perfect obedience. And this is the result, verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. The servant of Jehovah knows that God is near, is with him. Therefore, he says in verse 8, who will contend with me? In light of God being with him, who will contend with him? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Of course, these are rhetorical questions. Nobody's really Nobody can really be, not in an ultimate sense. Let him come near, he says. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus, the servant, is saying about himself here in Isaiah. Because it reflects directly upon something that Paul writes 
in the New Testament and reflects upon us. So if the servant is our representative and we're in the servant, now when the servant speaks this way, who could be our adversaries if the servant is our representative? Nobody, right? Paul captures this perfectly through the fulfillment of Christ in Romans 8. Listen to what it says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, vindicates. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I'm so grateful God placed us here at this time. We can see through these lens and know. We know it's Jesus, not only because it's obvious enough, but Jesus himself goes to the temple, picks up the scroll of Isaiah and says, this is me. This isn't one of the hard ones to figure out interpretively. Uh, The verses demand some analysis, no doubt, but we know it's Christ here forecasted. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. More of the same. Behold, verse 9, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. What a beautiful picture. They could stand there and accuse and accuse and accuse, but they're going to wear out like an old shirt. And they'll be there so long accusing with no success that the moths will eat it up too. I hope it's dawned on you like it's dawned on me. So I've been studying Isaiah. It's like every time I read the next passage for the next week, first of all, I cannot believe that God would be so gracious as to give me a job where you pay me to read the Scriptures And I get more and more sure of it every time I read it. I mean, every time I open this up, I mean, how can 700 years before someone speak these things and then we have the record of what happened? I mean, I don't know how anyone couldn't believe this. Well, that's not true. I know why. The same way none of us would believe it if it weren't for the Spirit of God. But when the Spirit of God opens your eyes to it, it just, it makes you all the more compelled, I hope, to want to tell other people this. Now, you can't make them believe, but you should not be ashamed of showing them what's here, because there's no other explanation for it but for the Spirit of God superintending over this and it all being true. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? That's the point. And that's the last two verses. We're Jehovah speaking again in light of what the servant has just revealed, what the servant has just said about himself. Now the obvious question from Jehovah to the people who just said that, God, you've forsaken me. So Jehovah says in verse 10, after the servant speaks, okay, who now? Who among you now fears the Lord and obeys his servant? Can you not see that the servant is credible? Can you not see that the servant is worth trusting? Can you not see the work of the servant and trust in that? Knowing you cannot, are you not in awe? That's what it means when it says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant. Young wrote, the fearer of the Lord is not one in abject terror. That's not the fear we're talking about. 
but one who reverently and in awe heard before the Lord. They know who's speaking. And it's awesome because of who's speaking. And we listen now. Such godly fear, Young says, manifests itself in obedience to God's commands. That's the picture of the servant for us as our representative. Fear due to our realization that we cannot stand before him as we are. That's how the servant promotes trust. By his example, but by his substitution, we have what we need. And in this way, we obey the voice of the servant. It says further in verse 10, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Um, This isn't the usual use of darkness. This is speaking more in terms of trouble in life. If you find yourself in trouble, in dire need of help, desperate, you can't help yourself, when you're in this state, like many felt they were at this time as, as things were unraveling nationally, they're in captivity. And then years later, when they were in captivity, they're pulling back on the message of Isaiah for strength. And it says, let you who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. It's a call to faith again, a call to rest upon the promises of God in the servant ultimately pictured here. Verse 11 changes it completely. Verse 10 is speaking to believers who struggle and need to remember where to trust. Verse 11 is not saying the same thing. It takes a little bit of a pause and a slow walkthrough to see what verse 11 is saying. Verse 11 is saying basically this. If you're in darkness and you think you can get yourself out of it by making your own light, you're going to be in trouble. It will not work. Look at what it says. Verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. If you try to make your own light, if you try to light your own way out of the darkness, you will fall and lie in torment. Uh, In the, the text here in the English, you can't see well, but it says in the original, gird your loins with burning flames. Sounds very painful. And it would be. That's exactly what it's meant to be said. People would, in antiquity apparently, uh, craft, they'd have flashlights, didn't have headlamps, so if they had to use both hands in the dark for some reason, navigating rough terrain, whatever the case may be, they would craft a torch just long enough to wrap around their belt in the front of them, and it was supposed to light their way, but there could be occasion often would be the case where it would catch them on fire, it would burn them. It was not wise, but they didn't know what else to do. They were desperate, and they needed both hands, so they girded their loins with flaming fire. That's what it is. That's what it is interpreted, or that's what it's translated to say, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire. Okay, go ahead and try that, is what they're saying. Go ahead and try that. And by the torches that you have kindled, This you have from my hand. Let me tell you what will happen. You shall lie down in torment. You're going to get burned if you try to light your own fire. 
When they find themselves in darkness, they look not to God and his servant, but instead they try to light their own fires. And that's this case with so many people striving today. They think they, in themselves, can create light that will help them navigate this life and this eternity, and they are lost. I love what Calvin says about this section. He, he notes that there's something of irony here. As though the prophet is saying... You have rejected the Lord and kindled your own fire to escape the darkness. Well, go now and take your course of life in that very fire. See how it will come, not to your salvation, but to your destruction. As we close this passage, and you see this picture of the servant is everything we're not and the reason we need him in this call to obey the voice of the servant. It reminds me of a New Testament passage among many. I'll say to you, if you want to study the book of Revelation, I know the men in our church are doing so, you will know that you really need to know Isaiah first. Now, I'm not saying stop your study if you don't. But I am saying that so much of what is in John's vision in Revelation is drawn from the language and the concepts and the themes of Isaiah. And some of them are big picture themes, some of them are very detailed. But one theme that keeps coming up in Isaiah is the worthiness of the servant. The worthiness of the servant to be our representative the desperation we should all feel if we're trying to represent ourselves, the sense that we need a representative. And then you come to the New Testament and see this clearly displayed in Christ. And especially come to Revelation. As I was reading this about the servant in verses 4 through 9 this week, about Friday it just kind of struck me something that, that is pictured in the New Testament that might give us further clarity about this theme. Listen to Revelation 5, the first few verses. Then I saw... In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And this reminds me of God saying in the beginning of our passage, Who is it? Why aren't you not listening? Why aren't you responding? Who can respond, essentially? Verse 3 of Revelation 5. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John says, John the writer of Revelation, he says, I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll. Whoa, this is awful. The scroll has to be open. And no one could do it. What a terrible state to be in that not one of us in this group could stand up and open it. And John weeps loudly because he he sees how desperate, how hopeless it is. And one of the elders said to me, to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Why? Because the lamb was worthy to take up and open the scroll. And that's the same lamb who is forecasted as the servant It's the same lamb who says before God, 
that God vindicates him, that God gives him the words to speak. He's given him ability to obey, and he has obeyed perfectly and represented us, and he is worthy. We're not, and that's desperately depressing when I read of Israel. And it's depressing not because I'm judging them, because that's exactly what I would have done. But like the Israelites, God sent the representative, the servant, And we have the full picture of it now. And so when we read this thematic element in Isaiah, we're always left walking out of here, hopefully, with a sense of full completion in Christ. And that's exactly what it's meant to do for us. This is why there is such depth and gravity to the words in the passage that we study today when the servant says, The Lord God has opened my ear And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? No one. Let's pray. Lord God, this picture of Christ in Isaiah just keeps getting more and more vivid with each chapter that we read. I pray for a deepened trust and faith in Christ as a result of what we have read about him. Lord, give us your Spirit's aid to obey the voice of your servant. Give us dependence upon the light that you provide in him. Encourage each follower of Christ today as they see once again the incredible depth of your commitment to your glory and to our salvation through Christ. Amen.